This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. When you choose Baxter for your CRRT program, you're not only choosing true patient-focused treatment with industry-leading CRRT technology, you're also selecting a partner dedicated to optimizing your clinical success in treating patients with acute kidney injury. Our commitment to you starts with a program individualized to your facility's needs and provides complete support every step of the way. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Hi there, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Fraser. Bruce Mueller is a professor and associate dean at the University of Michigan's College of Pharmacy. Bruce gave an eye-opening presentation at this year's Critical Care Congress on drug dosing in patients with acute renal injury and joins me to talk about the concepts of drug dosing during renal replacement therapy. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, Bruce, before we start, do you have any disclosures you'd like to report to the audience? Yes, I receive grant funding from Merck and from Baxter, and I'm a consultant to Baxter and to Next Stage. Bruce, this, um, this podcast is based largely around a talk that you gave at the Congress. Can you um, just highlight the issues around uh, prescribing drug doses in patients with renal failure and more broadly with renal replacement therapy? Right. Well, it's interesting because uh, patients who uh, are in, in the hospital, in the ICUs who have acute kidney injury, you know, they're really difficult to dose with drugs. Clinicians have to make these difficult decisions about how do I dose? Do I give enough? Do I give too much? Am I worried about toxicity? What's my renal replacement therapy doing? What's my patient's physiology like right now? Where are they in sepsis? Am I achieving adequate serum concentrations at at an infection site, for example? So it's really a, a lot of decisions that have to be made. And you know, it's one thing to look in a package insert for a drug and there's some standard dose there that was derived in a patient who was pretty much otherwise stable generally. Uh, they weren't critically ill and they weren't changing all the time and they weren't massively fluid overloaded, et cetera, et cetera. And so to come up with the right dose with a patient who's changing, whose renal replacement therapy might be changing, might be getting different kinds of renal replacement therapies, really makes it difficult, I think, uh, to do some rational drug dosing. Bruce, um, let's walk through some of those uh, factors that you just mentioned, things like volume of distribution and protein binding and the way that critical illness obviously affects those. What impacts do they have on drug dosing? Sure. So if you think about a lot of our patients, particularly those uh, with acute kidney injury and, are, and are, are fluid overloaded, you can pretty much assume that they're going to have a larger volume distribution for water-soluble drugs, meaning that... Um, Larger doses are going to have to be used, and you know how much bigger kind of depends on on the dose. But you know these people have a larger volume. You've got to fill up that volume with drug. Otherwise, all that volume is just diluting out a standard dose that you might be giving. And then you mentioned decreased protein binding. So that's a two-edged sword. A lot of uh, drugs that we give are highly protein bound, and they're highly protein bound meaning, okay, only a little bit of it is free to exert a pharmacologic activity. In critically ill patients, frequently they're catabolic, uh, their serum proteins or serum albumins are much lower, and they have a higher free fraction of the drug, which at first you might say, well, that means there should be more free drug to exert an effect. But on the other hand, when you have more free drug, that drug looks for some place to go. And so when you see decreased protein binding, you see a larger volume of distribution, which kind of just dilutes out the drug again. And finally, more free drug also means that there's more drug to be removed by the renal replacement therapy that's going on. So that ends up kind of being a wash. Uh, But 
and every drug probably behaves differently, and, and drugs are protein-bound to different extents. So, you know, there's two real easy pharmacokinetic examples uh, in critical illness where probably, especially with the increased volume distribution, we have to give larger doses. At least we have to give a larger initial loading doses to fill up all of their volume. But I think there's other pharmacokinetic issues that are happening in the intensive care unit that we don't really appreciate. So, you know, everyone's talking about missing patients who have, you know, high GFRs, you know, GFRs of 200, you know, that we never see those, we never recognize those patients early enough, and there's a lot of clearance. And, you know, that's true maybe in, in, in some of our, our critically ill patients, but when I think about the patients with acute kidney injury, there are some other hidden things that I think clinicians can't see, uh, and that is there's a lot of evidence now building that that the liver clearance of drugs in acute kidney injury is different than what we think it is. Uh, and I'll give you some examples. If you, th you think about a drug like vancomycin, anybody would say, well, vancomycin is a drug that is renally eliminated, adjusted doses for, for kidney disease. And of course, that's true. But we don't recognize that, in fact, there's a fair amount of hepatic clearance of vancomycin as well. And so I'll give you some real numbers. Vancomycin's hepatic clearance in patients with normal renal function is 40 milliliters a minute. Patients' non-renal clearance or liver clearance in end-stage renal disease is only six milliliters per minute, which is why you can dose the drug every few days. Well, if you think about that, 40 to 6, that's the, that's the number of milliliters per minute difference at the liver site. What is the liver clearance in a patient with acute kidney injury? Is it closer to 40 or is it closer to 6? And that difference can really be profound. What's interesting about that is, you know, we can measure vancomycin levels, and so we can just dose to levels. It's not a big deal. But if I told you that same big, huge difference in non-real clearance exists for a drug like imipenem, where the non-renal clearance in end-stage renal disease is 50 mils a minute, but in normals it's more like 130 or 140 milliliters per minute. What is it for acute kidney injury and how should I dose my patient? Because I can't measure uh, an imipenem concentration. If I give too much, I'm worried about seizures. If I don't give enough, I'm worried I'm not going to treat the infection. We did a study in this years ago and found that in acute kidney injury, the non-renal clearance or the liver clearance was about a about 90 to 100 milliliters per minute, or about twice as much as of what it is in end-stage renal disease. But the drug dosing guidelines that have been published were all derived in patients with chronic kidney disease or end-stage renal disease, and they had non-real clearances of 50. But if in acute kidney injury it's 100, then that would just tell you right there that you need to give twice as much drug to the patient with acute kidney injury who's anuric than you'd have to give to an end-stage renal disease patient who's anuric just to get the same serum concentrations. But how do we know what someone's liver clearance is? We can't measure uh, imipenem concentrations, and there's really not a good measure of the metabolic activity of the liver that we can look at you know, with a lab test. You know, it's not like we can look at a serum creatinine and have an estimate of GFR. In the case of the liver and, and, its, and its metabolism activity, we've really got not much to work with. Does the situation get any clearer once we start renal replacement therapies, Bruce? You know, I think in some ways it does because particularly with continuous renal replacement therapies, you know, you can almost think of that as a mechanical GFR. And so as long as CRT is running and it's running at a continual rate, you can make some guesses about dosing. And I guess what I would say is let's make sure we give that big loading dose up front so we fill up that volume, but then we can you know, have at least some idea what's coming out of the machine because for most antibiotics that we use, we can make a pretty good estimate of what's being cleared by the CRT machine.
Where it gets a little hairy is when we use different renal replacement therapies. So depending on where you go around the world, you know, obviously CRT is used more in some places than others, even though we all do it differently. But uh, some people are using a, a, a PERT-like therapy, a prolonged intermittent renal replacement therapy, which is sort of a mix between CRT and, say, an intermittent hemodialysis. And, of course, intermittent hemodialysis is, a, is another issue where, you know, a patient has almost no clearance, and then you give them a superhuman clearance for four hours in a day. Depending on how the drug's pharmacodynamics works would really make you think about how I should maybe dose the, the drug differently. So to, let me give you an example of what I mean here. So imagine if you had a, a drug where you knew that you just needed to be above the MIC of the organism for this antibiotic to be active. And so that's true for drugs like beta-lactams, penicillin, cephalosporins, you know, any of the carbapenems. As long as you're above the MIC of that organism, you're getting pretty good kill. And being 100 times over that MIC of the organism doesn't give you a whole lot more kill than just being two or three times above that MIC. So in that case, you'd just like to give that drug at, a, at a, enough of a concentration to get the kill, but you don't want to have real high concentrations because you're worried about toxicity. If you're dealing with something like CRT with a continual removal of the drug that's pretty constant, you can dose the drug in such a way that you can kind of give it so you keep at that continual level. But when you use intermittent hemodialysis, you might be at a concentration that you like, and then you turn on hemodialysis and you have this superhuman amount of uh, drug that's being removed you know, by the dialysis machine. And then you kind of got to figure out what's my way back to get to that concentration that I want to get to, which is really difficult with drugs that you can't measure serum concentrations for. So the CRT, I think, in a lot of ways makes it easier just due to its continual nature. But there's a lot of variations, too, in the mode and the, uh, the various settings, blood flow rates and all those sorts of things that presumably would impact on drug clearance as well. Is that right? Yeah, it really does. And um, I, I'm always struck by, by this statement. If, if, if I were to develop acute lung injury in where you are in Australia or where I am here in Michigan, I bet our pulmonologists would treat us pretty much the same way on our lung replacement therapy or pulmonary replacement therapy. But if we, de if we developed acute kidney injury, it's quite likely that I'd get treated with something very different there than what I would get treated with here. And, and that lack of, of standardization, it does make the drug dosing more difficult, but if I'm looking at the uh, you know, all the all the well, especially when I talk to pharmacists who don't handle CRT machines and dialysis machines very often, you know, I, I say to them, if you're looking at the CRT machine, I know that you can do blood flow differently. You can do CVVH or CVHD or CVHDF. The most important thing is just what's coming out of that machine from an effluent perspective, whether that's spent dialysate, ultrafiltrate, or a combination of the two. And if I just know what that is, I get at least a, a beginning of a guess of how much drug clearance that I've got. So if I can only look at one number, that's what I'm looking at. With all that sort of confusion around, uh, you know, there's a lot of theoretical reasons why we're getting it wrong, what evidence is there that we are actually getting it wrong? Well, there, there's a number of studies uh, that have gone on to measure serum concentrations in patients who are receiving renal replacement therapies in the ICU, and we're not meeting pharmacodynamic goals, whether that goal is to be you know, above the MIC for a certain percentage of the dosing interval or depending on the kind of drug, there's different pharmacodynamic goals. And the studies are showing us that we're not making it, uh, and we're not making it generally because we're not dosing high enough. And we're not making it generally because we're not giving loading doses up front to make sure our patients are therapeutic. And, you know, the other thing that's really interesting about it is we've all had patients who, who start CRT and maybe they're really hypervolemic. Maybe they're 20 liters up 
And so we start CRT, and we give a dose, and I've already told you I think we should be giving a higher dose to fill up all that water. Let's say you were an aggressive clinician and you decided to give high doses up front, and you're going to fill up that volume, and you're really going to stay on top of the antibiotic dosing. But if you're doing a good job of removing fluid, and within you know four or five days you remove that 20 liters of volume, it might be time to reduce the dose because you've done such a good job with fluid control. So you can't. There is no such thing as one right dose for all patients with CRT. I, th- I think it becomes individualized. And until we get serum concentration monitoring for more antibiotics besides the aminoglycosides and vancomycin, uh, it, it's it's a crapshoot. I'm really looking forward to the day when when clinical assays are available for a lot more drugs. Bruce, in your presentation, you presented a slide that was you know quite striking about the rates of underdosing with various antibiotics. Can you um, explain that? Uh, yeah, so there's a, there was a study that was done by Seiler and colleagues. It was in critical care in 2011, and it, was, it, was, it just opened my eyes a lot. They looked at 53 consecutive CRT patients receiving the antibiotics that we use uh, all the time, meropenem, perpercillin, tazobactam, cefepime, and ceftazidine, and they measured serum concentrations. And they chose a, an aggressive pharmacodynamic target, the four times the MIC of, of pseudomonas, for a certain amount of time over the dosing interval. And what was amazing to me is I read this paper, and it, and it really changed the kind of the kind of research that I do. Is they looked at these patients receiving CRT, and they said, "Well, how many of those who receive meropenem, a thousand milligrams every twelve hours, are therapeutic?" And that's a pretty standard dose, meropenem, thousand milligrams every twelve hours. And only four out of five patients, or eighty-one percent, were therapeutic by the definitions that they used. They asked the same question about piperacillin tazobactam. With an aggressive dose of four grams of piperacillin with a half a gram of tazobactam every six hours, and only about two-thirds of it, 71% in that study, were therapeutic. When they looked at ceftazidine being dosed at two grams Q12, only half were therapeutic. And when they looked at cefepime, 2,000 milligrams every 12 hours in these patients receiving CRT, none of them reached the therapeutic target for pseudomonas. And to me, that really opened my eyes. And, and, and the thing that I always think about in these patients is that, you know, when patients have acute kidney injury and they're on a, on a renal replacement therapy, they've got a high mortality rate. They've got a really high mortality rate. And what's fascinating to me is that if you look at cause of death, infectious causes are the number one cause. So why are patients dying of infections, uh, yet we have antibiotics? And when these patients are dying of infections, they're not dying of infections from organisms for which there is no drug on the formulary that can treat them. In fact, these patients at some dose are going to respond to drugs like the meropenem, piptazo, cefepime, ceftazidine that I just talked about, yet we're not getting uh, high enough serum concentrations. We're not giving high enough doses to treat those organisms effectively and so maybe the reason that the number one cause of death is infection is because we're just not dosing high enough. From a clinical perspective, that's absolutely horrifying numbers, aren't they? But I guess that raises the question then, what do we do about this problem? And presumably using a resource like your local pharmacy to better dose uh, is going to improve the situation? Well, I, I think the, the folks that are doing therapeutic drug monitoring need to be publishing their, their regimens that are, that are working, uh, and I think that's important because once we get the therapeutic drug monitoring, I think we're going we're gonna to go someplace, and, and, and I think we're going to find that we need to be using higher doses. When I first started my career, 
uh, and again, I'm a pharmacist, and as I, as I looked at my career, and I, I concentrated my dosing on what was the CRT machine doing. And while that's an important part of it, the more I do this, the more I realize that it's not so much the variability of what's being cleared by the CRT machine as much as it is the variability in our patients. We can't even see, for example, as I already mentioned, what their liver function is. There's not, not a way to even tell. We're not paying enough attention to fluid overload and filling up volume. And, and because we're not doing those things, I, I think we're making mistakes and we're, we're underdosing. And I guess for the listeners of this podcast, I, I, would, I would just ask you this question, which I have used at the beginning of the ASN meeting when I teach the critical care nephrology uh, course. I ask this question to the audience, and here it is. I say, think of the last 10 patients you had that you had to put on CRT, and think about how many of them didn't survive. And if it's like usual numbers, you know, three to five out of that 10 won't have survived. And, and often it's about infection. So then I would say, if you think about those patients, you know, three to five passed away, presumably many of them from infectious causes. But if you think of your last 10 patients that you dosed antibiotics in, how many showed you signs and symptoms of too much antibiotic? And by that, I don't mean a rash that somebody gets as an idiosyncratic reaction, but say a seizure based on a cephalosporin or a, or a carbapenem. We just don't see that very much. We see patients dying all the time of infectious causes that we're treating, but we don't see anybody getting too much antibiotic, which makes me think, maybe we're not giving enough antibiotic. And, and the published studies are kind of saying the same thing. We're probably not giving enough antibiotics to these patients. Bruce, to summarize the podcast, what are the take-home messages for the clinician at the bedside trying to work out how much antibiotic to be giving to their patient? What would you recommend? Yeah. My, my recommendation would be give a loading dose. Almost every one of our antibiotics should be giving a, a loading dose. The flat dose of, you know, say, one gram Q, whatever, or 500 Q, whatever, isn't, isn't filling up the patient fast enough. Surviving sepsis guidelines say get an appropriate antibiotic there as fast as possible. And I'm adding to that, get that appropriate antibiotic there at a concentration that's appropriate as fast as possible. So give a loading dose up front. Uh, understand what renal replacement therapy is doing to your drug dosing. If you're one of these places that uses a, a, a treatment like a PERT where some, half the day a patient's on a renal replacement therapy and half the time they're not, recognize that when you give the dose might be more important than what dose you give because if you're giving it while they're actively dialyzing, you have to replace that drug and maybe give a whole lot more drug to make up for that. Uh, and I guess the third thing I'd say is I, I personally am very aggressive in dosing uh, antibiotics. In those first 48 hours, if you dose the patients as if they had normal renal function, you know, I would look for antibiotic toxicity, but I don't think you're likely to see it. I would just be very aggressive in the really critical first 48 hours of antibiotic therapy. And it don't depend on the package insert, which was never designed for the patient that's in front of you who has acute kidney injury, is fluid overloaded, is in the middle of sepsis. Uh, that's not where the dose got derived from. You can be more aggressive than what it says there. Bruce, many thanks for your time on the podcast today and sharing your insights into this important area. Thank you for the invitation. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcasts, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation.
When you choose Baxter for your CRRT program, you're not only choosing true patient-focused treatment with industry-leading CRRT technology, you're also selecting a partner dedicated to optimizing your clinical success in treating patients with acute kidney injury. Our commitment to you starts with a program individualized to your facility's needs and provides complete support every step of the way. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Todd Fraser, MD, is an intensive care and retrieval medicine physician from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. He is a staff specialist at Nusa Hospital and is the founder of Osler Technology, a clinical certification and training system. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.